0: Chapter 12, verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be your beginning of months. It will be for your first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel, in the tenth day of this month, they each must take a lamb for themselves according to their families, a lamb for each household. And if any household is too small for a lamb, the man and his next door neighbor are to take a lamb according to the number of people. You will make your account for the lamb according to how much each one can eat. Your lamb must be perfect, a male, one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you must care for it until the fourteenth day of the month. And then the whole community of Israel will kill it around sundown, and they will take some of the blood and put it on the two side posts and on the top of the door frame of the houses where they will eat it. And they will eat the meat the same night, and they will eat it roasted over the fire and bread made with yeast, without yeast and with bitter herbs. Do not eat it raw or boiled in the water, but roast it over the fire with its head, its legs, its entrails. You must leave nothing until morning, but you must burn with fire whatever remains of it until morning. And this is how you are to eat it, dressed to travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. Now, this is the most important festival in all the Bible. This is the most important festival in the entire Bible. This is the only way that you can become saved. The Passover meal. This is what they are to do. They are to get a lamb. And they are to take it from their sheephold, And they are to bring it on the 10th of Nisan. Now, Nisan is the 7th month in their calendar. They have, they have a different calendar to us, obviously. But what's interesting is God says from this point on... The first, the 14, the first, the ninth son is supposed to be the first month of your year. So he's basically coming to the saying, "This is all going to happen in July, but after this happens on the fourteenth of July, from this point on, the month of July is going to be the first month of the year. It's going to be your new year, and then August is the second month of the year, and so forth." This is what God is saying. Why? Because their salvation from Egypt, where they become a people that belong to God, is to become their new year. Every new year begins with a reminder of who they are, their new identity. Now the problem is the Jews will never do this. They actually will maintain two calendars. They'll keep their civil calendar for everyday life businesses all that kind of stuff and they'll keep a complete this calendar this new calendar just for their festivals now yeah I, I think that's so confusing so it's like saying chris we're going to have one calendar for christmas and easter and halloween and thanksgiving but then we're going to do a completely different calendar for just your google calendar and your day planner and all that kind of stuff so that's what they end up doing but that's not what god said to do but we always think of creative ways to be disobedient this is going to be. What they're going to do is take an animal on the 10th day, the 10th day of the month, and they're to bring it in. And when they bring it in, they're to take care of it. Now, remember, these animals already belong to them. And you get attached to your animals. If you've ever worked on a farm or that kind of stuff, you financially invested in them. And that financial investment and then those hours invested in them eventually creates some kind of an emotional investment, more so for some people than others. But there is something. So you bring it in. Not only are they invested, now that they're bringing it in the house and it's to live with them for four days in their house. Which means you're really going to get attached to it, especially your kids. The reason for this is for four days, you're to inspect it and make sure that it definitely has no blemishes. On the 14th day, you're to slice its neck and bleed it out completely. And we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to Leviticus. Yay. On <laughs> uh, why we do this and how this works. For right now, this is like a little trailer. Okay, a little preview. So you bleed it out. Now, this is like taking your pet dog with your family and your kids and slicing a thread, or your cat. I, mean, I would cry more for the dog, though. And you kill it. Ki- this is going to be an emotional time. But that's the whole point. Okay, because one is teaching you what sin really does. It teaches you what sin does. We can rationalize sin really easily. You then kill it. You then take this blood and you bleed it out. Now, one of the reasons you have to cut the throat is because you have to get all the blood out of the meat. Meat, that blood that goes into the meat will poison the meat, and it's not good, and that's not healthy. And the only way to guarantee that all the blood's out is if the heart's still pumping and pumping it out, and you hang it up. So I know it sounds really cruel, but it really is not that bad for the animal. I mean, it's painful to have in but it's, it's like going to sleep. And two, it's way better than you all dying because your meat is poisoned or getting sick. So then they're, that's all they're to do. They're not allowed to touch the animal anymore. Then they are to roast it, completely intact, head, face, legs, everything. Now, why? They're not allowed to boil it. One of the reasons they're not allowed to boil it is because that's what the canines did. There's a lot of things that God is going to command them not to do in Leviticus just because that's what the Canaanites do. He's trying to make them look different than the culture so that they stand out. Second reason is boiling takes it too long. There's a lot to do in one night. You have to go and do this. You have to have your meal. You have to pack up everything that you've ever owned, including all your animals. And you have to remember, it's not like they're just packing a suitcase. I mean, they own way less than we do. But they also have tons of animals they have to take with them and you have to go get all the gold and silver from all your neighbors before you leave which is gonna happen later so there's a lot to do in one night They're, and then he even says you're running on haste so boiling takes too long third roasting the lamb if you boil something you know that like the, the, all the meat then just falls apart if you boil it well and it doesn't stay intact but if you roast it the meat stays intact So by roasting it, it allows you to put it on the table and you can look at Fluffy in the eyes as you eat him. (laughs) Now why is that important? Because you need to... See, when you're eating a hamburger from McDonald's, you're not thinking this was an animal that has died. But when you're sitting there at the table staring into its face as you eat it, after you lived with it for about four days and everybody got attached to it, you're thinking this thing died and it should have been me. This should have been me, and it's dead now because of my sins. That's far more graphic than a bunch of meat that's fallen apart because you boiled it in a crock pot, and now you're throwing it on the table. And so that's the real reason here. You need to see that lamb as your— because the point is not to have a meal for the sake of eating. The point is to have a meal for the sake of fellowship with God. And the only way that can happen is if something else dies in your place. Now, the other reason you have to do this is because you have to roast it in the flames. Because fire is a symbol of judgment. And we'll talk about that a lot more when we get to the tabernacle. But a fire is a symbol of judgment. And a lot of this is symbolic. A lot of this is symbolic. Not allowed to break any of the bones. Not allowed to dismantle it, except for eating it. And you're then to take the blood and put it on your doorposts. Because only with the blood of this innocent animal covering your sins can you be atoned. Now, this is why. Now, we'll talk about this a lot more in detail in Leviticus, like I said. So, if you've got a lot of questions, don't worry. I will probably answer them and then some in Leviticus. But the blood now represents the atonement. And that blood has to cover your house and it has to cover your family. And that's, that's where it's at. But here's the thing, too. We're going to be told in the Bible that that it doesn't really atone for sins and take away your sins. It only covers your sin. Like cleaning up your house and just sweeping the dirt under the rug and shoving a whole bunch of things in the closet and shoving the door closed really quick. It's not really cleaning. It's just covering. And that's all these animals do because an animal really cannot take away your sin. It cannot take away your sin. And this is the point that the author of Hebrews is going to make is if an animal could take care of your sin then why do we have to keep sacrificing animal after animal after animal after animal animal continuously? Because it can't. So any intelligent person at this meal knows. In fact, the fact that God is going to say that this Passover must be done perpetually forever suggests to you know that this is going to be repetitive. And they already come from a world where everybody has sacrifices from every single culture. They've already been doing this kind of stuff. No matter what culture you're from, they know that this isn't really going to do it, which ultimately drives you back to the point at it's faith. It's faith that's saving them here this night. It's faith. And so this lamb. Now, the other thing you understand is this is a communal meal. Notice it says that the whole family must eat this together, and if your family is too small to eat an entire lamb, then get together with your neighbors and eat it. This is about communion. This is about fellowship with each other. And that's important to understand, too, where they all get together. Now, they're not allowed to have bread with yeast in it. And the reason is yeast was a symbol of corruption. In my notes, I put sin, but that was a thing that people used to believe, and I missed that in my editing. It will be fixed in the update. Um, But it's not specifically just sin. It's the idea of corruption, which argument semantics. It could be sin. But it's the idea of corruption that yeast, you know, permeates everything. It infiltrates all of the loaf. And there's nothing that escapes the yeast. And this, So it's the idea that something comes in and just thoroughly corrupts it, changes it. And so they're to remove that from this bread as they eat it. It also allows them to bake it much more quickly and get out the door. So it's basically a cracker. This is what they're to do to escape the debt. And everybody who does this, will live. Everybody does this. Now, by now, this is obvious. We've been around long enough to know the Passover is the day that God passes over you from his wrath. And we all know that this is now Jesus, and he becomes our Passover lamb for us, where the wrath of God passes over us. And I don't know if you guys know, most of you probably know, but our Lord's Supper and communion is Passover. It's the the beginning of all that. Now, there are seven festivals of God that they have to do every year. And when we get to Leviticus 23, we'll go through all seven festivals, and then I'll connect them all for you, and then we'll connect them to the Second Testament. So right now this is just kind of because we're in Exodus, and it's important for the context. But I'll talk about the Passover again, and we'll really connect it when we get to Leviticus 23. Um, but one of the things that you must understand here is one of the cool things is on the, upper, the night that Jesus is doing Passover in the Bible, he looks at them, and a normal Passover meal, he was supposed to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness. So he would hold up the bread, and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction. Okay, we went through the wilderness, we suffered, we were afflicted, but by faith we trusted God, and he provided us bread, which we'll get into a little bit later. That's what he's supposed to say. But instead, he holds it up and says, this is my body broken for you. It's not our affliction through testing and trials under God. He changes it to that this is going to become my affliction for you. And that's a huge change. For thousands of years, they've been saying this is our affliction, our affliction, our affliction, our affliction. And now Christ says... This is my affliction, which means he's going to become the affliction of Israel. He's going to become what they couldn't handle, what couldn't really do. But here's what's also really cool. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but nowhere is there a lamb at that meal. The lamb is completely missing that night. There's no lamb and there's no blood. They were supposed to kill a lamb, put the blood on their doorpost every single Passover, for every single year. And there's no lamb and there's no blood. They don't do any of it because Christ is the lamb. And so this would be a powerful. Not only does he change it drastically, but he also leaves something out. And you know if you're the these are all good Jews. I mean, if you read John chapter 14 through 17, they're really confused that entire night. They're just like, you're screwing everything up, Jesus. Like, seriously. I mean, they practically say that. You're getting everything wrong. Like, how do you not know this by now? You're a rabbi. And and then they're confused. I mean, even Peter's correcting them. I'll go with you. No, no, no. You You don't wash my feet. It's like, how dare you? Like, they're so confused because he's screwing it all up. But what they don't realize is he's fulfilling it all. He's fulfilling it all. And so he's, he's not there. And then we'll talk about later when we get to Leviticus, there's actually four cups they're supposed to drink. He doesn't drink the fourth cup. The final cup is a cup of um, redemption. But he can't. In fact, he actually, there's two cups. The first, The second, third cup is a cup of wrath. And they're all supposed to drink it. But only he drinks it. He never passes it around to them. Because he's going to drink the wrath, not them. And then they're supposed to drink the final cup, which is a cup of redemption. And he makes them leave the room before they can get to the fourth cup. You know, they're thinking, that wine was really expensive. And they're leaving. Why? Because they can't drink the cup of redemption until Pentecost. Because that's when the Holy Spirit's going to come. Because he hasn't died yet. They can't drink the cup of redemption until he drinks the cup of wrath. And so we'll talk about that a lot more. But you have to realize that he's literally taking this festival. And God designs this festival intentionally knowing how Christ is going to fulfill it thousands of years later. And when we get to all seven festivals, it gets even cooler. Of just how God has just mapped everything out to the exact day. And so this is the 14th of Nisan. They're supposed to celebrate this. Any questions, comments? Which is also interesting because Jesus actually put on trial... By the Pharisees, remember the part where the Pharisees and Sadducees—they all kind of take their turn—and they're like, "Hey Jesus, if you believe in the resurrection, then what about this story?" And then they're like, "Hey Jesus," the Pharisees come along and say, "Who should we pay taxes to? Should we pay taxes at all?" And they're inspecting him, and they could not find any fault in him. Four days later, he died. So he actually goes through inspection. He comes into the temple, and then they put him on trial. Like a just as a people group and then he's put on trial by Pilate and nobody can find any fault in him and then they kill him. He has his own four day inspection by everybody. The Sadducees, the Pharisees and Pilate and Herod. So Moses tells Pharaoh Yahweh is going to kill all your firstborn." No. Then he tells the Hebrews here's how you protect yourselves. Are we assuming that then the Hebrews who are friends with some of the Egyptians they tell them Yes. By this point Remember, they've been under attack for 11 months. And they've begun to realize those people over there are not getting harmed. So if you're deciding that you want to be a part of that, you're going to probably start attaching yourself more to them. And that's going to be pastor, Just like anybody who starts getting more and more interested in Christ and they find out you're a believer, they're going to start hanging out with you more, maybe even come to church, and they're going to start becoming a part of that community. So yeah, that would be the assumption is that The people after 11 months are realizing, I don't want to be a part of this anymore, and I want to be a part of that over there. They're probably beginning to attach themselves to them and getting to know them. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt in the same night, and I will attack all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of humans and of animals, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute this judgment. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, so that when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and this plague will not fall on you to destroy you. When I attack the land of Egypt, this day will become a memorial for you, and you will celebrate it as a festival to Yahweh. It will be celebrated perpetually as a lasting ordinance. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. Surely on the first day you must put away yeast from your houses, because anyone who eats bread made with yeast from the first day to the seventh day will be cut off from Israel. The second festival they are to celebrate is what's called Unleavened Bread Festival. And Unleavened Bread starts the day after Passover. Now, what they're supposed to do then is that they're supposed to go through the entire house, and they'll look for any yeast. Now, you have to realize that when they live in a day and age without sanitation and no brooms and dirt floors and they live in caves and all kinds of stuff, I don't know if you've ever cooked with yeast, but yeast can easily, in flour, can easily go everywhere. Let alone when you're doing this for every single meal, every single day of your life in a day and age where you don't have like tile floors and granite countertops and it's not easy to keep everything clean. And so it's not like you're really looking trying to get all the yeast out of your house all the time because you're doing this. I mean, literally, you spend pretty much all morning making your lunch. And by the time you get done making lunch, you clean up and then you start making dinner immediately after that. I mean, that's just the way it works. So you're not really trying to get yeast out of everything because you're just going from making one meal to making the next. So this is the day, the week, the week that you basically remove all yeast. And so basically it's caused you to be um, introspective of what's going on in your own life. And as you're removing the yeast, you're to be looking to see if there's any corruption or defilement in your own life. And so this is the time of repentance. That's what they're to do. Now, we'll talk about the unleavened bread a lot more when we get to Leviticus chapter 23. But this is the first two. Now, he doesn't give them all seven festivals yet. He's just giving them what they need to get out the door. And then once they're out the door, about 11 months later at Mount Sinai, he'll give them the rest of the festivals to talk about. So this will become a memorial. They are to do this forever. And this is why we do this too. We do the Lord's Supper over and over again because this will be a reminder, a memorial for what God has done through us um, or through Jesus Christ for us. Now notice how seriously he takes this. If you eat bread with yeast in it, I will cut you off from my covenant community. That's pretty serious. You're like, holy cow, God, like seriously, it's just yeast. You're going to really cut me off from fellowship in the community? Well, it's because you don't love them enough to pay attention to that detail. I mean, that's the reality. If somebody says, like, I really don't like peanuts, and peanuts make me break out and have, like, an allergic reaction, and I can die from it, and your spouse keeps making you peanut meals? (laughs) You're going to say, one, you don't actually care about me enough to listen to me. And two, I think you're trying to kill me. (laughs) And so God says this is supposed to be a festival about you having fellowship with me, and it's supposed to be intentionally about you taking the time to repent and think about removing corruption from your life, and that doesn't matter to you, and you honestly say that you're a part of a fellowship with me. And so we think like, oh, this is just really legalistic, God, or talk about overkill and harshness. But if you had a spouse or a friend that never listened to anything you ever said and never, they didn't know what your favorite color was, they didn't know what your favorite meals were, and they make you a birthday meal every single year and they never get it right and it's always things you don't like and places that you don't want to go to, you would say, we're not really friends. We're not really friends. And that's what God is saying here. Pay attention to the details because the details are how you say, I love you. This isn't legalism. This is a relationship. And no, your friend would not look at you and say, oh, you're so legalistic. I can't believe that you're upset that I'm making food for you you don't like. Nobody calls that legalism. They call that insensitivity. And so that's what God is saying here. This is about paying attention to details because this is how you say I love you. The details matter. And for those who are not detail-oriented people, then the fact that you actually get the details right, even is even a bigger screaming way of saying I love you. Okay. Now, good thing is, most of these things are done in community, so you're never all by yourself paying attention to details. (laughs) You can find somebody else to help you. Verse 16, on the first day there will be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there will be a holy convocation for you. He's actually turning these two days into another Sabbath. So, not just the Saturday will be a Sabbath, but the first day of unleavened bread will be a Sabbath, and the last day of unleavened bread will be a Sabbath. That's what he's saying. So if unleavened bread starts on Sunday, you just had two Sabbaths in a row. If it starts like on a Monday, then you have a Sabbath and then a day and then a Sabbath again. So that's how it'll work. But we'll talk about that a lot more when we get to Leviticus 23, but that's what he means here. So you will keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread because of this very day I brought you, um, brought your regiments out of the land of Egypt so that you must keep this day perpetually as a lasting ordinance in the first month from the 14th day to the of the month and the evening, you will eat bread made without yeast until the 21st day of the month of the evening. For seven days yeast must not be found in your houses. For whoever eats what is made with yeast, that person will be cut off from the community of Israel, whether a foreigner or one born in the land, and you will not eat anything made of, with yeast. In the places where you live, you must eat bread made without yeast. You get the point? Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and told them, Go and select for yourselves a lamb or a goat for your family and kill the Passover animals. Take a branch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin. That's an evergreen branch. So some people say that represents eternal life and that kind of stuff, but the main idea is that the blood will actually stick to it and it makes a really good paintbrush. A lot of branches don't make good paintbrushes, but that does. Now, one of you is to go out of the door of this house until morning, for Yahweh will pass through to strike Egypt, and when he sees the blood on the top of the door frame and the two side posts, then Yahweh will pass over the door, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you. You must observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. Notice this is the third time he says you are to do this forever. Now, who is the destroyer? We don't know. First, God says, I am going to come to Egypt and kill all the firstborn. Now, he says, the destroyer will come. Later, it will be called an angel. And so the idea is that it doesn't really matter because the one who's ultimately behind it is God. When you enter the land that Yahweh will give you, just as He said, you must observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then you will say, It is a sacrifice at Yahweh's Passover. When He passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, when He struck Egypt and delivered our households, the people bowed down low to the ground, and the Israelites went away and did exactly as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. Rituals mean nothing without education. One of the problems with the Catholic Church is they kind of forgotten a lot of the reasons why they do things. Or they haven't, they don't teach it very well. I'm not saying every Catholic Church does that, but a lot do. And so the reality is it means nothing if you don't know. Now here's the important thing. This is what the book of Deuteronomy is really going to emphasize. Remember, 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 remember. And what's really cool is that God will always say, and when your children ask, you tell them. Because here's the thing. We've gotten used to stop asking questions. But if you remember having children or you have children, they ask a lot of questions. A lot. And so what I have found, my wife and I tried very hard to say, we're going to try to answer every question as best as we possibly can. And we actually were doing a pretty good job until Natasha threw a why not at us. Like, (laughs) the sky is blue, why not? It's like, I don't know what to do with that, (laughs) okay? So, but the reality is this, because what I found was, as we began to answer the questions, one, it made it really easy to teach her, because before you're like, oh, I kind of forgot to teach her because we're so busy, and life da 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 And next thing you know, you're not really doing Bible studies or something like that, where if you're committed to answering that question, they force you into talking about God. They force you to to make that part of your life. The other thing that I noticed was, it was reminding me of a lot of things that I've taken for granted, things that we just get used to. I mean, think about it. In your house, there's so many things that you've decorated in your house and you don't even notice they're there anymore because it becomes so familiar. That painting that you loved and you just had to have is now you don't even look at anymore because it's just so familiar and you just take it for granted. And so the reality is now when they're asking, you're like, oh yeah, it forces you to remember and Or when they ask me, like, why do you have that? Well, this is the time that God answered a prayer, and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's right. And you're, you're remembering things. And so it forces you back into thinking about who God is and then appreciating those things and not taking for granted anymore. And that's the beauty is that where we begin to lose that curiosity when the children come in or the grandchildren come in, if you're committed to answering those questions, and I know it's easier said than done, but the reality is it benefits both of you. It benefits both of you. And that's why God keeps saying, when your children ask, you answer them. And then He holds you accountable if you don't answer. He holds you accountable. And when we get the book of Judges, we're going to be told that the next generation did not know God because the parents did not answer the questions. It only took one generation for them to completely forget who God was because the parents, they were great, great The most faithful generation that Israel has ever had was Joshua's generation. But they did not answer their kids' questions. And that says something. Even no matter how faithful you are to God, you can still fail to teach your children. You can still fail. And so God says when your children ask, you answer. You answer.